Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Here we are on a special Lenten episode of the Red Tree Pod. I didn't uh, think we we're going to have one of those, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Chris, how are, how are you doing in this? Do, fine, doing doing fine well. Lenten we day. are in Lenten season, aren't we? We um, I don't. I guess it's been what a week here, so uh, roughly. But it doesn't mean a lot to a couple of us Baptist preachers here. But uh, but it is a sign of spring and that Easter's right around the corner and um, something you and I have, I think, talked a bit about, but we're, we're fine sitting this Lenten thing out, I think. Uh, it's, you know, nothing, nothing terribly wrong with it. I think it has an interesting history and um, in some capacity, but, um, but yeah, but we, we like eating hamburgers, I think, uh, on Fridays. <laughs> Salmon is it's, good too, but I, I do prefer a burger. <laughs> I prefer a burger, yep. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, maybe another, another uh, podcast sometime we could riff on this a bit more, but I think uh, in the New Testament, you see a lot more feasting than fasting, a lot more of God God saying, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you know, and, and the faith epitomized by that rather than asceticism mm. or, or restraint. And so um, at least that's kind of our, our take on it. It's kind of why I think we're okay sitting this, sitting this Lent thing out sometimes as, as Baptist free church kind of non-church calendar observing people uh, sometime. But the bigger thing would be, I think, that, that deeper theology and, um, yeah. uh, for us, but, but still a, a sweet time of year that I'm thankful for. But. Yeah, it is. And I, I think the history there is an important thing. Every time I see Lent kind of coming back up of like, this is so exciting. We should do this thing that we haven't, where did this go? You know, uh, you look at the history of it and you're like, well, I don't know, but the, the genesis of this thing is a little spotty. And right. once you turn 14, you have to do certain things if you're a part of this church uh, during this season. And uh, there's just so much room to communicate the utter opposite wrong thing when it comes to what's actually what's God actually saying when it comes to the season and in the church calendar. So yeah, yeah. Not, no judgment right. if you're a Lenten celebrator. That's awesome. No, uh, yeah. There's more burgers for us. That's good news. <laughs> and so, but it is, it, it, there is room to talk. And I, I think that uh, the church calendar brings lots of room to talk on things like this. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. yeah. I think it moved from uh, entire fasting at some point in history, didn't it? To no, no, eat, no food, or was it just meat on Fridays? And then it became fish was allowed. I think that was. I'm probably missing a step in there, but it's just kind of interesting to hear the, you know, how lighter it's gotten uh, for. And there's, you know, people give up lots of stuff, or they, you know, they want to, you know, abstain from social media or stuff like that. Maybe that's better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Could see see more fruit from that, but um, but anyway, how are you, Davis? How are uh, things? Yes, in uh, your. I've, life in house these days. Things are things are good. I've enjoyed several burgers lately. I actually haven't. I, I, that sounds really good though. Now that you bring it up, uh, but no. I, I uh, let's see. I built a little kitchenette for my daughter the last few days. 
Uh, you would think Ikea built it because there was a million and a half pieces and it took hours <laughs> to build this thing. Uh, but it ended up being just a, a, a thrilling project because at the end, Hazel was just so pumped. I mean, I just, she's just starting to walk around and so watching her open up all these cabinets and want to just put things in, put things out, put things in, put things out. Uh, it's incessant. That's all she wants to do now. And so, yeah, just uh, especially in our, what we do here with the Red Tree Pod, just thinking about grace and everyday life experiences. Uh, probably the first time as a dad that I've really like hurt my back over something uh, that Hazel just delights in for first hours on first, first of many. <laughs> yeah. yeah, most of the time it's like necessity stuff. This was the first time where it was like, this is just purely for play. And I think there's just a cool image there of the way that God as our father is not only built this world for us, but he's rebuilt it in his son. And so much of what the gospel now marks us with is this spirit of, of playfulness. Um, in fact, uh, to laugh and to play is, is a, an act of faith where we look death in the face and say, we're no longer intimidated by the seriousness of this thing. And uh, I just delighted in, in thinking about that as I watched my daughter giggle at a fake stove. So <laughs> I'm doing well. So love it. But we're not yeah. here to talk about kitchenettes. We're here to talk about the word. Let's go. That's the worst transition we've ever had on this podcast. I think but it was not that I'll bad, take it. actually. Not I'll that take bad. It. Yeah. It's, it's Lenten season. <laughs> what do you expect? <laughs> we're giving up uh, good, transitions good transitions for, for Lent. <laughs> so we are celebrating. All right. We lied. We yeah. are celebrating Lent. That's right. good. Well, today we're going to be hanging out in 1 Samuel 24, and then our psalm is actually going to be connected in uh, number 57. Then we're going to be turning the page to 1 Thessalonians 5, the first 11 verses there. And then for our what, but what about uh, section of today's podcast, we got a little bit of a treat, something that often comes through uh, from individuals who kind of have their own grace awakening as, as uh, this stuff just really starts to grab them. I, I think an initial question is, is a thematic one. And so we'll save that for the end. And if you're just eager to get there, you can just fast forward or, or listen at 2X. So, uh, but we're going to talk really fast. So it'd really be like 4X <laughs> at this point. So no, right. let's turn to 1 Samuel 24. Uh, this is actually a pretty, rel- it's a relatively more well-known uh, passage of David's life. It is a time where Saul is trying to kill him. And Saul is the current king, but David has been anointed as this king of Israel, the king that, golly, the story has just been driving towards. We just want this guy to be sitting on the throne because he's going to do so much good for the kingdom. Um, And Saul somehow kind of knows that and wants to prevent that because he really likes wearing sweet robes and a crown. And so he's trying to take David out and they come into this just fascinatingly, interestingly detailed scene where Saul goes into a cave and while he's in there, he doesn't know that David and his men are, are there, uh, but they remain hidden. And David creeps up unnoticed and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Saul walks out, and then David shortly after kind of comes out from afar and says, I totally could have killed you, but I didn't. And then shortly after, all of a sudden, David's demeanor is, is changed really quickly, and he's conscience-stricken, it says, for having cut off the robe. And... Uh, and basically apologizes, but has this real chance to kill Saul, but doesn't. Mm. And so what do we make of this? Well, one thing we have said a lot, I think already in this podcast is how David is a type of Christ. And we, we say that because the Bible says that, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is a son of David genealogically, but that comes with theological resemblance uh, as well. So uh, David then being the ancestor of Jesus just is going to say things and do things that are shadows of the one who would come in his 
uh, in his wake, so to speak, and 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 do it better and do it on a much greater level. And so the the big thing you see here, kind of from the thirty thousand foot view, is just that David is showing amazing restraint and kindness towards people who literally want to kill him, uh, Saul in particular. And uh, or in the New Testament, we would we would call this, uh, or Jesus calls this, enemy love. And I think that's why it's a big deal for him. Um, part looking back, he's saying, you know, I, I come from the line of kindness towards haters, kindness towards enemies. And so in Christ, we, this is our story. We are the Saul in this story. We have effectively uh, chased God out of our lives. We want him off the throne. We, we want to be kings and queens of our life and make all of our decisions and um, know, uh, you know, be our own sense of right and wrong and, and save ourselves, basically, uh, is kind of the, the narrative. And so here we have this great news that, that David, uh, in the spirit of Christ who would come after him, is is uh, is a lover of enemies that he could have killed, but he didn't. He would have been, in one sense, right to you could say. Um, he's innocent. It says in uh, uh, towards the, the end of the chapter, he's innocent. He, he didn't do anything to deserve the chase, but um, but yeah, he's but he shows shows uh, amazing kindness. Mm. So what do, what do you make of the robe scene there with the cutting of the robe? Is that significant, or are these details just kind of? Yeah, I, I think so. I think when when I read that, you know, sometimes in these stories, I look for when there's a salvation of some kind, or an escape, or you know, some kind of moment of yeah, I should have died but didn't, or something like that, which. This, that's what this is. I think uh, I also look for, well, did someone else get hurt? Did some other thing kind of uh, experience mm. some kind of, uh, did it come at the cost, at a cost to someone or something else? And um, I think you could argue for, uh, in some sense, that was David because he lost a chance to get revenge and that kind of hurts, you know, sometimes. Um, but I think the, I think the robe actually plays, plays that role uh, quite nicely. That's the robe was ripped uh, and suffered uh, and Saul didn't, you know? And so I think that uh, actually you see Jesus's clothing ripped as well when he's dying on the cross. I think for, it's a similar kind of callback, I think here as well, that the ripped clothing represent his ripped flesh and the torn curtain and all kinds of great stuff there in John 19, which no time for that today, but I think it is kind of a, a hearkening ahead in the story here. Uh, if we know the end of the story, uh, which we do, but uh, if, if we do as readers, then we might think of that. We might think, where else in the Bible does things get torn, you know? And, and ultimately it's Jesus who is torn um, on, on the cross. He is the robe, you could say, in, in this story. Wow, I really love that. And I think uh, in addition to this enemy love here, uh, Sometimes this passage gets treated like the reason David really didn't get after Saul here is because of this anointed, like that, well, let's spend time in that adjective and let's really think about God's holiness. And 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 David just has this awe and this reverence for God that you should too. And uh, while that's not necessarily wrong, it's it's certainly not the main emphasis, the main thrust of this passage. And we know this because, uh, well, for one, the scene is about to repeat in, in two chapters. Chapter 26, we're going to get almost the exact same situation where David has a chance to kill Saul, but he doesn't. Uh, and then actually that's going to promote a reconciliation between the two, and they're going to stop this little uh, drama war that they have between them. Uh, but in between these two scenes of David uh, having the ability to kill Saul, but not, you have another situation where David and his and his team are, are walking around and they're staying in different parts of um, the the Middle East, or and they they come across people groups and there there's this one guy whose name is Nabal. Uh, that's a 
probably an English transliteration of a Hebrew words. You probably pronounce the second half of that more with more emphasis uh, than the English. But we have a rule that if you come across a name you don't know how to pronounce in the Bible, just say it with confidence. And, and everyone speed. Confidence, confidence and speed. speed. <laughs> Dynamite. So, Nabal, uh, say it very fast. Um, he, he's a guy who has means, and David and his team are kind of in their area, and they send some people forward, and they have... Uh, they request just a place, basically a place to stay. And Nabal's like, why? Everyone's asking me for stuff. You, you guys just feed yourself or get off my lawn, basically. And uh, David is not excited about this. He's quite offended, especially after this emotionally turbulent interaction with Saul. And so he gets his boys and his posse ready to go, and they're going to take Nabal out. And then along the way, Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about this and kind of intercedes. And so what, what ends up happening is, is Abigail preaches, in one sense, the... The, that vengeance does not belong to you, David, especially this God you worship is one who is going to take vengeance into his own hands and ends up preaching a, a very countercultural message, um, even at that time and especially at this time, that vengeance, yeah, it actually does rest in the hands of, of God. And, and we would say hands that have holes in them mm-hmm. uh, in light of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And David is kind of cut to the quick, more conscience-stricken language here. And he's like, holy cow, I was about to get my hands bloodied over this kind of tiny squeamish thing uh, or this, this little fight that I, this little tiff I had with this guy. And he doesn't. And then uh, what ends up happening is Nabal hears about this and what his wife had done. And then he gets terrified. And then it says like 10 days later, he just dies uh, for disobeying God. And uh, it's this really confusing kind of sequence. But when you put it in between the two interactions between mm-hmm. Saul and David, you do, you do, you see the, the dial turning up higher about the way God is talking about enemy love and how much vengeance is in his hands, not ours. And so when somebody wrongs you, somebody treats you a certain way, God's call to action is not pick up your sword and go to go to task here. Uh, just do it in, in the language of modern culture, right? Just like, hey, get this thing done. Uh, instead, it, it really is call out to God and know that he is going to send forward himself to do what mm. he's going to do in the world. Um, and interestingly here, even Nabal, the, the fool is what, what the word actually means. According to his wife, he's, she literally says, this guy's a fool. Don't, don't go and kill him. What are you doing? Um, interestingly enough that, that death and their access to their goods is based on, uh, Jesus being a, being the ultimate fulfillment of Nabal, who is a fool, but Jesus becomes a fool for us on the cross. And even the message we now have is connected to this foolishness of God. And so there's a, it's, it's just fascinating to see Jesus show up in characters that are not awesome. Um, I, I find that really moving and, and that's really great. It's just surprising. Um, and then I think the last thing too, with the, with the just do it emphasis that we just have right now. Um, as I was reading this passage, I just thought of the, the iPad I use as I'm looking at these passages is, is the new software says rest to open. Have you seen this on, a, on any of the Apple products? I haven't yet. So on the touch ID, rather than like clicking the button, it just has you rest your finger on it to open and unlock what's behind all the Apple goods. Uh, but I just love that phrase. I've just been, I've been so struck by it over the past few weeks as I've been thinking like, what a, what a shorthanded way to give away the gospel, rest to open. In the context of this vengeance sequence, you have this David being confronted by Abigail saying, hey, hey, rest to open here, right? Like the problem that you think you're, you're, that you have, it's not going to be solved by you picking up your sword and just doing it. Instead, mm. just, just give it a rest open yourself up to God and God's going to do what he's going to do. And that's exactly what happens in the story, which is a good place to turn to our Psalm. 
And so let's do it. Uh, we're here in Psalm 57, and uh, this is about as fancy as we're ever going to get in the Red Tree Pod because the psalm we chose. It's, it was actually Chris was doing. The psalm Chris chose is connected to David hiding out in caves while Saul is trying to pursue him. So we put a little bit of work in this it time. It just doesn't get better than that. And it really, we can promise it actually won't get better than that. That is, that <laughs> is the height yeah. <laughs> of our performance. Yeah. So you have David hanging out in, in, in the cave and we have access now to his brain. What's he thinking about while he's being pursued by Saul? So why don't you take it from here, Chris? Yeah, maybe a couple of big picture thoughts to start. I, I think that the psalm itself, if you read it, it's just sounds uh, very heavenly, which makes sense because it's a prayer. He's praying to God and and uh, pouring out his angst, his anguish, his concern, his fear, being chased into this cave, concerned for his life, uh, feels a, a sense of injustice over it as well. He did nothing wrong to deserve this, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's interesting breakdown though, too, linguistically. Like if you um, look at the first three verses uh, and then the verses four to six, then verses seven to 11, it kind of flows from uh, death imagery to burial imagery to resurrection imagery, actually, oh. which I think is kind of interesting because, again, if, if David is a songwriter, then uh, he's singing songs, writing songs, praying prayers that will later become Jesus's prayers, essentially. And and a lot of his Psalms do this. I think we've actually talked about this earlier in the podcast as well. Um, but David being the most prolific Psalm writer um, I, in in the Psalter, this is something to look out for when you read the Psalms. They're not, they're not just about us as sinners who feel far from God. That's, that, that's part of it. That, that David is like us in a lot of ways as a sinner, uh, but there's much more going on. And so David's uh, death-like imagery, his, re- his burial-like imagery being literally in a cave and his resurrection-like imagery uh, towards the bottom, I think really sing this kind of like, you know, uh, and then linking that with 1 Samuel 24 kind of sings this song of this needs to happen before I'm going to be anointed, you know, because later in the story, that's when he's anointed. He becomes king after this whole cave fiasco kind of thing. And so it's a, it's a reminder as readers that a suffering king went before us. He had this happen to him. And through that, he wielded a salvation that, that would, um, strike at the heart of all of our problems forever, all of our sins, all of death in its entirety, all of the, the, every single dark angel who's ever, who's ever ever been in existence. Like that's how, but this had to happen. It came at a great cost, uh, to, uh, to him. And so, and so a lot of this cave stuff too, uh, is, um, you know, we, we've talked Davis to think a bit about, bit about this, but if you pull on the, the string of that, you see a lot of cave like things elsewhere in the Bible. Like think of, uh, the, the well that Joseph was thrown into then came out of that and, and worked a great salvation for his brothers and for the whole region from the famine. Or think about, uh, Daniel in the lion's den and how that, that event preceded the conversion of the King and, um, and many other types of good as well kind of came out of that. Uh, or think about Jonah and being swallowed by the fish and having kind of a burial. He actually kind of, Jonah actually kind of sings a song or writes a psalm-like prayer in Jonah too as well, thinking he's dead. I mean, how could you not think you're dead in a situation like that? Like, I guess this is what death is like. And so he writes as though he's in Sheol, like he's in hell, like he's in death and cries out to God for deliverance and has that kind of uh, resurrection experience being spit out of the fish after that. So um, there are others as well, but Dave's ca- David's cave-like experience uh, is um, reminiscent of all of that. And it, all of those stories point ahead to Jesus who would be crucified and then buried in a tomb, bur- buried in a cave as well. And through that, um, 
that in, in that pre-resurrection rest, that, that pre-resurrection carrying our sins far and far away, that's how he becomes our king, or, or at least he is our king, but he exerts his, his loving kingship over us uh, by not lording it over us, by not demanding uh, anything of us, but completely working for us with his nail-pierced hands, as you said before. Uh, and so the psalm then just is a another kind of prophetic song-like iteration in the story that just in its own poetic, beautiful way points us ahead to the song Jesus will sing later um, on the cross when he says it's finished and then is buried, buried for us. Oh man, and it just jumps off the page once you start to bring these realities. The thing that God is, again, putting on in neon lights for us in the whole story of the Bible, that it really is all about the death, burial, and resurrection of his son to solve the human predicament. And so when you see that start to light up in other passages, and it does everywhere, but to see how is it's compelling and it makes it, it makes your heart kind of move and then leap within you in so many ways. Um, and I also think it brings clarity to some bigger doctrines and some bigger ideas maybe that we've heard if we've been around church or um, one of those being just the glory of God, the very churchy word, a very churchy idea. And it actually comes up twice uh, here in this in this short psalm, 11 verse psalm. And two of those verses are dedicated to, to this idea. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. And that sounds like uh, one of the prophets. I'm forgetting him now, but he's just saying like uh, that that God's glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover all the, the sea. thing, all yeah. the sea. Yeah. yeah. And so there's there's this expectation that God's glory is going to be seen and it's going to be reveled in, and everyone's going to be so pumped about it. And I, I think for many years I had this idea that that's that's going to be like God's holiness. Like it's going to be an Isaiah six, like I'm, we're going to look at it and we're just going to be like, I'm dead. I'm, I'm so dead. Right. Um, but I, 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 especially with the way you're describing the Psalm, there's so much room to bring the realities of what God is trying to tell us. The thing that he's already revealing to us to make sense of what he means. What does it mean that his glory is going to cover the whole earth? Well, here again, in this Psalm, we have another verse that repeats itself and that's Verse three and verse 10, this idea that God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. Or in verse 10, for great is your love reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. This sounds a lot like Jesus Mm. when he's crucified for us. He's literally pinned to a cross, reaching up to the heavens. The very love of God is screaming to the heavens, let my people go. It is finished. I am paying the penalty for their sins so that they will know God and they will be healed. They will be ultimately saved. And what what do we have in this message but the glory of God being spread over all the earth so that two Gentiles like you and I, two non-Lenten celebrators can hear about the good news of God. Even us. And be, even us and, and be changed. The glory of God is covering the earth right now. And it sounds like the love of Jesus reaching to the heavens for us. It is, it is such good news. And it's God sending forth his love and his faithfulness for us. And, and this matters for the everyday anxieties of life, like the little A anxieties that we experience all get their power from this fear of death, from this separation from God tremor that we've all had since we came into this cold world, right? But when we start to see God sending forth his love, reaching to the heavens in the person and work of Jesus Christ, all those little anxieties just lose a little bit more power until one day they'll have absolutely none in our lives, which is good news because we have been rescued. 
by, by the one who woke the dawn, verse eight. I just love that. I will awaken the dawn. Mm. Again, this is where you have to see Jesus is the author of these. Like David is, when he's writing that, he's like, I don't even know what I mean. <laughs> I'm going to wake the dawn. Totally is. <laughs> he, I mean, he has, I think the Bible even says that. I mean, Jesus says that about David, that he spoke by the spirit, I think, when he penned Psalm 110 or whatever he's referring to. But, you know, that, that idea of by the spirit, oh, I think, sure. imp- implies that there's more that God is meaning than what David is meaning. And so just interpretationally, if that's true, like if the human authors are always like limited with their own meaning and God is always meaning something more, that as interpreters, we have to be looking for that more. If we stop where the Bible's saying go, mm-hmm. we're going to miss a ton. And that's and, and this is one of those cases where if we only look for what David historically meant, we would miss all of this and, we, and we'd miss the true divine meaning that is actually balm, you know, for our souls and not just history. For sure. And I, Psalm 110 is such a fun example because he's, there's just no way he knew what he was doing in bringing up Melchizedek. This guy who gets like four verses in the Old Testament, David writes the Psalm and he's like, this is the guy, he's the big deal, <laughs> right? which the New Testament's going to pick on up on whoever wrote Hebrews and is like, no, David was That's right. That's a big deal. He's yeah. the big deal. Yep. We should maybe do an episode on him someday. Right. Hashtag Melchizedek. <laughs> All right, well, let's turn to the New Testament now. We're in First Thessalonians 5, making our way through this letter. We just got 11 verses here. And uh, last episode, we looked at how the rapture is not actually real. Uh, it's not about the rapture. But this passage begins with the day of the Lord. And Paul's big idea is we, we don't need to write to you about this day of the Lord. We don't know when it's going to come. It's going to be like a thief of the night. And uh, all of a sudden, it's just going to be here. And then he transitions in verse four to talk about that you're not in darkness um, and you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. I'll just read six through 11 for us. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. What uh, what stands out for you, Chris, as we look at First Thess five one through eleven? Yeah, I think one one as I look for grace in this uh, passage, I see Paul's statements of like you are the children of light, or you are a child of light. Um, so sort of speaking a truth over us, wow. uh, rather than saying uh, become a child of light. You know, I think sometimes when we re- read these letters, we we tend to read or it's easy to read imperatives into places where they're just not, you know, and they they do exist, but when they're not, we shouldn't force them in. This is like Paul saying, you are a child of light. This is something that God has given you. He's done for you. Um, if we were to kind of click on the word light, we would, uh, we would change that word out for Jesus, right? Uh, Cause Jesus is the light of the world. And so to be a child of light is to be a child of Jesus. And, and uh, that's a beautiful thing to actually be a, a child, to have to be adopted into God's family uh, is not something you work for. It's something you're chosen for, you know, and so that, that there's just, I mean, grace just oozes over that phrase from so many different angles. Um, it's makes enough to make your head spin almost, uh, but in a good way. Uh, so I think that's, that, that's the one side of it is just, uh, yeah, to see that um, 
even though there's a place to say, as he does later in the passage or elsewhere in the passage, that that we should live in light of this truth. You know, that's a good thing. Like, let us be sober then and, and let us be awake in the gospel. Let's be let's be revived in the fact that that this whole thing is true. This whole book really is true. Uh, those are good exhortations for Christians to constantly hear. And Paul says that. I say it for your encouragement. He says, so encourage. This is an encouraging thing, not a burdensome thing. This is an encouraging thing uh, to hear this from other Christians, whether read or pre or just kind of prayed over, like this is a good thing, I think, to hear uh, for us because yeah. the, the future's bright and the present's bright because of, of Jesus. Future's so bright, I got to wear shades, someone <laughs> once said. Yeah, and I also really appreciate the connection here between sobriety and faith, hope, and love. Uh, re- really easy to get sidetracked by the so- sober, drunken imagery, um, but just follow the, follow the dots here. He's connecting sobriety to faith, hope, and love, and this is what's to... M- it's what's to mark children of the light. All of these things are kind of in the same pot. And uh, just think about that for a second, right? Faith, hope, and love. And that's what's connected to being sober in this world. Mm. In other words, uh, drunkenness, like a drunken man stumbling across a, a, an alley, is, is what's happening when we don't have these attributes. When we think our reason and our ability to educate ourselves on all the latest things and, and master this world that is around us, we look according to heaven's perspective, like a drunken man who thinks that they're smarter than everyone else. Uh, I'm always just blessed by seeing Jesus so unimpressed with super smart people who, who think they've got it all figured out. And there's, it, it's not a bash against education or, or being intelligent. It's Paul, the guy who's writing this letter is a pretty intelligent guy. But regularly, he's admonishing us, hey, don't put so much stock in that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in fact, to enter the kingdom of God, you got to be one who's like a child. You got to be one who's making a mess of things and willing to admit that and, and ask for help and, and uh, be bad at stuff, right? Like, that's, there's a beauty in these things. And, and it's all connected to having this posture of, of faith, hope, and love, meaning I don't have it all figured out. I do need God's help. I regularly try to take things into my own hands and make a mess of stuff. And I need an Abigail-like figure to come along and say, hey, hey, don't do that. (laughs) I don't even belong to your faith tradition yet, but even your God says not to do that, right? Uh, there's the, this is a this is a call to us to go remember these things. Remember that He died for us. That's another piece in verse ten there, where it's like, don't let your eyes glaze past this. This is the thing that you and I are constantly prone to forgetting. He died for us. Encourage each other in these things. He's coming back. He rose again. He woke the dawn up, and He is going to return. Uh, with that, let's turn the the chapter now here to uh, talk about our but what about theme, and that is the the topic of antinomian. Big religious theological word that just really means anti-law. Nom, nomos or namas is, is the word law. And so antinomian is anti-law-ian, meaning uh, with all this talk about grace and when you turn the spotlight of grace onto the scriptures, like what we try to do in this podcast, uh, aren't you really just setting people up to do whatever they want? In fact, that was a, a big deal for the founding fathers of this country. Of re- you really you can't preach too much of that grace stuff. Make sure you're really turning up the, the volume on Sermon on the Mount, morality, and and some of these things. And and so, w- what do we do with this charge? That are we are we antinomian at the end of the day? I think there are a few points that we want to just dialogue about with this. And the first is uh, that you just got to ask the question: What's the story? So this question often comes from the place of, well, if you're going you're gonna to make a big fuss about legalism, which is people trying to justify themselves through the law, uh, make sure you dedicate equal amounts of time to the problem of antinomianism, that people are just lawless. 
And so these are the equal and opposite threats of the gospel. That's something that we often hear. And I, I think we would gladly just push back on that idea a little bit, first of all, and just say, well, what's the story in scripture? Is that what God has been telling us through this long uh, story that spans three different continents, three different languages and thousands of years is the thing that he's telling us through that there are two threats to life in me, legalism and antinomianism. And, and I think that that's, that's a good place to start because we can go, oh, maybe not, right? The, the, the real problem starts in Genesis 3 when pe- the people um, like us, Adam and Eve, choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a great picture of the law, like we've covered elsewhere on this podcast. What is this tree but the tree of the law? The knowledge of not just evil, but the knowledge of good and the assumptions that's connected to it of if I eat of this, I will be able to do the good and avoid the evil. And what's going to happen throughout the rest of the storyline? It's a downward spiral of people thinking they can do good and avoid evil and constantly making a mess of stuff. That's probably the the PG version of, of saying what happens in the Old Testament when people are under the law, they're under the knowledge of good and evil. And and so you, you never see this third tree of under lawlessness. You see this being under the law and sin taking hold of people and lawlessness being the outproduct of this. So that's a really important starting point as we talk about what ultimately is the story. It's people being under the law and suppressing that truth. Mm. Love it. Yeah, I think I would just add, and this might be getting ahead of things a little bit here, but I I would add the hope of the prophets in the Bible when they're talking about Jesus and this new thing coming, you know, is not um, that a time is coming when the law will still be over you, but there won't be any kind of like, you know, uh, curse or any kind of condition attached to it, but there's still some kind of like, you know, fair sort of gracious obligation or something like that to keep it. That's not what you see. You see uh, a, a, a removal of of the law. You see statements like in Jeremiah 31, which says this is not going to be like the covenant that, that God gave through Moses. It's going to be completely different. Uh, things like that. Or just Jesus himself predicted the suffering. It's almost like the law is going to be passed up by a bloody body. That's like, uh, you know, Psalm 40, I think kind of talks about that. Hebrews 10 quotes Psalm 40. That's a, it's in its own right. That's a prophecy as we were just talking about Psalm 57. Um, David, David says that it's kind of interesting. So movement from law and sacrifice. I think that's why God says, I don't want your sacrifices. Like I don't want human made ones. I want an era where it's just my hands working for you. And it's my sacrifice given to you. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, so it's an inheritance to you. I work and, and you benefit. Um, I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want, I want an era of one way love, not, um, not the law. And that, that's what the prophets are saying resoundingly, which, which uh, is, it's, it's much more, t- there's a two camps there. It's much more, much more binary mm-hmm. ra- rather than this kind of third idea of some kind of like helpful use of the law, I think still over us. So, yeah. So definitely a movement from this uh, being under the law to, to quote Romans, to being under grace in Romans yes. 6. And, and this is what the story is. So it's not a, a movement from being under the, the law and, and, and anti-law and then onto some form of collected or concentrated law that's good. It's a movement from being under the law to being under something so much better right. that isn't marked by the law. So that, that matters. So that's the story. That's the first point. The second point, though, and in answering this question, so are, are we just antinomians? Um, are we producing more of a problem? 
is uh, kind of a surprising one. And, and that is, I, I just have never met one. I have yet to meet somebody who's actually an antinomian. And I've just met a lot of people. Like in ministry, you just meet all sorts of different people. And yes, everyone is struggling with stuff. But I, because of what God has said to us in this story, it means you've never met somebody who isn't under the law and the associated burdens that come with the law. Right? The equation is all human beings are born under the knowledge of good and evil. We're all born in Adam. And therefore, sin is being accounted for by God through his law. And sin is running rampant. And so all of us are feeling these pressures, this anxiety of the heart, this terror, as Luther called it, that we are not okay. We look like Adam and Eve all the time, just under the shame and burden of sin, being accounted for by a just and good God. Therefore, we're just hiding. Our hearts are constantly hiding. We're building these fig leaves, not literally, but spiritually, emotionally. Mm -hmm. We're hiding behind stuff all the time, trying to justify our existence and ultimately get love from people around us as this screaming of love me, God. That's the thing that we ultimately want. And, and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is probably the, the hill we die on of just saying like you really have not met somebody who isn't suffering under this burden. You, you, you and I don't meet people who are illogical and making bad decisions who need to make better decisions. Instead, you and I meet and are people who are suffering under the burden of sin and the, like a disease that's making us do things we don't want to do. And it's the thing that we need deliverance from, not an education for how to deliver ourselves. Mm -hmm. We need somebody who's coming to rescue us. Right. And so it's, it's really important to get that equation right of like, no, there's, there's just isn't, there's just no such thing. <laughs> right. And the law is, is, as the Bible says, it's a, it's like an echo wall. It's a, it, it reflects back, you know, onto us, our sin and knowledge of that sin. It's this constant, uh, you know, standard uh, of sorts. And so Romans 5.20, big verse on that, just says the law came in to increase the trespass. It, you know, that's that was its job ultimately. And so um, like one thing I, you know, you and I talk about, I think sometimes too, Davis, and hear, hear from people is, um, it's, and it's a great question, is just like, how, how can I, how can something be good you know, and, and passing, you know, like, cause I thought the Bible says the law is good, like in Romans seven. And that's a great, and it, it is, it's, it's good because it's, it's good. It's from God, you know, and then things that saying like, do not commit adultery is a good thing. Do not murder is a good thing. Uh, worship God alone right down the list. And so, but I think that it helps just to be nuanced. Like a lot of times in theology, something can be good, but passing, Something can be good, but still kill you, <laughs> you know, uh, at least in, in this frame of reference, like the Bible says the law kills in second Corinthians three, six, but the spirit gives life. That's a strong conjunction there. The, but is really important to underline it. They're Super two different things. Button. The law kills you to Christians, yeah. uh, to Christians. So Christians need to hear this as well. This is not just a, like a, a pre-conversion uh, catechism, you know, or, or a little lesson. Like this is for Christians to remember this because we all no matter what we think about this, tend to, like you're saying, tend to go back to this law way of thinking and trying to add to the gospel. And, um, and so it serves that good mirror purpose. A mirror is a good thing, right? Because yep. it shows you the dirt in your face, but you go somewhere else entirely to a rag and soap to clean it. You don't pick the mirror off the wall and start to scrub your cheek Unless with, a, Chuck with a piece of glass. <laughs> Chuck Norris could handle it. Everyone else though, yes. pr probably wouldn't work. So yeah, I do think these analogies are helpful because the law, like it's good if we all have cancer and sin is like a cancer. It's actually a really helpful analogy for this. Uh, the law is like the doctor who says you have cancer. Stop putting band-aids on your skin. That's not going to do anything for the cancer that's beneath the surface. 
Uh, and yet the doctor's diagnosis of this isn't going to heal us. We need to go to chemo and we need to start a, a treatment program for this. Um, but the gospel says that that cancer has been removed, right? What do we do now that that cancer has been removed? Why would you go back to the doctor, right? What are you, are you going to go back and say, will, will you tell me how to live now to no longer get cancer again? It's like the, the doctor's going to be like, uh, my best bet, you have a good workout program and eat some decent food, but there's zero guarantees that the cancer might come, right? It's like, you don't go back to the doctor to, to learn how to live. You, you praise God. You say, I've been healed. I'm going to go play with my kids. I'm going to go... Yeah, serve my neighbor and, and have a good go see some awesome movies, right? Have a hamburger. Have a hamburger, right? All right. So the the, the last point though, I think, as we we tackle this topic of antinomian. And, uh, so the first one is know the story. Second one's you've never met one. And then I think the third point on antinomianism is uh, if you are being accused of this, it probably means you're preaching the gospel. And to say that differently, if if no one's ever accused you of this, maybe you should go back and and look at the gospel you're giving away because it's probably a watered down, blended version of the gospel that isn't actually good news. It's probably a job description that when people hear it, they're not like, whoa, 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 wait, you're you're saying that Jesus actually died for my sin, past, present, and future, and and he's not demanding anything of me? Yes, 100%. That is what I'm saying. Uh, The reason we say this is because this is the question Paul is constantly getting. And we know this because in his most articulate description of the gospel, where he weaves in the whole story of the Old Testament, Romans 1 through 5, goes all the way back to Adam, all the way back to Abraham. And he just says, hey, this has been the story since the beginning, that God justifies the ungodly based on his based on their belief, which is rooted in his grace. And in in presenting this, that when sin just overpowers people and sin increases, grace just abounds all the more like a tidal wave. It just washes it out and, and, and sin is gone. He's presented this so many times in so many different places. He knows the question that you're thinking. And that's Romans 6.1. Well, should we just sin all the time so that grace may abound? That's the antinomian question. Are we just to sin all the time? Like there's there really is no law anymore? And, and Paul's answer here is super instructive because he doesn't say, no, 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 don't sin. You know the Ten Commandments. No, he's, he talks about that's not who you are. Mm. You, have, you have died with Christ and you've risen again. And in fact, his answer to the question is ultimately rooted in Romans 6.14, that mm-hmm. you're not under the law, but you are under grace. And so if you want to see obedience happen more in your life, of obeying God and the joy that is to follow him, then live under grace in light of the news of Jesus's being crucified for you and rising again three days later to awaken the dawn of faith in your heart. This is the pattern of of how we preach. This is the pattern of obedience. Love it. Yeah, I think six four. Yeah, six fourteen uh, in Romans. That's huge. I mean, that seems to be saying that. I mean, the living under the law will actually incite sin. Like, actually makes the problem. Like, sin will no longer be your master because you're under grace. He says, not law. So, if you reverse engineer that to actually live under a standard you can't keep or whatever that is, biblical or extra biblical, you know, like any kind of standard uh, is is to put yourself under an unkeepable, you know, sin exposing, sin kind of inciting uh, way of living. Uh, I think of Galatians 5, where he lists out the fruit of the spirit and says, there's no law against these things, uh, which is Paul, kind of Paul saying, the law can't stop these things from happening anymore because the law, life under the law prevented kindness, it prevented goodness, it prevented patience. It, it just incited the opposite. Or, you know, at best, even if someone worked really hard to have those qualities in their life, their motives were all off. They felt arrogant, proud about themselves. They looked down on others for not having them up to their standard or they were crushed or whatever. It, it just, you know, life under the law leads to 
uh, pride or despair. It's almost impossible for it not to. And and Jesus comes in and says, I'm not blending myself with this. I, and, you know, I, I am apart from law, Romans 3 says. I, I'm coming apart from it. Or in Ephesians 2, I set aside the law so that Jew and Gentile could get together, which is to say God and sinner could get together. But without the law being set aside uh, through his crucifixion, th- there's more separation because the law separates. It doesn't bring together. Uh, and so the whole, yeah, again, going back to the Old Testament, but also just littered throughout the letters of the New Testament is just this constant drum being beat of you can't have it both ways. It, it is a story of two covenants to accentuate the latter. The first came into it to point to, typify in different ways, but to contrast with as well and accentuate our need for this better covenant that would be all about Jesus's blood and not about the works of our hands. Praise such, God. Such good news. So I, I think in summary, go and get uh, charged with being an antinomian this week. That's our homework. It's a bad, I, I, I'm comp, I feel it's a compliment when I, when people say that to me and I know you do too. I think <laughs> I do. Yeah, I, I think it is. So. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Podcast.